is the New South Wales Country Hour with Michael Condon on ABC Radio New South Wales. Hello again and welcome to the show. Coming up, fire ants found in New South Wales sparking a biosecurity crackdown with surveillance and sniffer dogs staking out the region to try and find out find more ants if possible. And a deal with the Greens has been struck that could see more than 700 gigalitres of water used for farming each year allocated to the environment through Commonwealth buybacks across the Murray-Darling Basin. To get the Murray-Darling Basin plan back on track so that we can deliver for the 3 million Australians that rely on the Murray-Darling Basin river system for their drinking water, for the towns and communities that rely on the river system, for the industry, the agriculture that relies on the river system, and of course for the environment that relies so much on this river system. You might have some thoughts about that. Uh, looks like that uh, bill is set to be passed with those amendments after the agreement with the Greens. Zero four six seven nine double two six eight four buybacks definitely on the table as a result if it does if it does pass. Zero four six seven nine double two six eight four will have uh, some reaction to that as well from uh, some of the local mayors uh, involved in protests last week around the state. It's uh, coming up to six minutes past 12 in the country hour. But uh, first up today, the red imported fire ant, which had been confined to southeast Queensland for more than two decades. Well, it's finally crossed over into New South Wales. The New South Wales Department of Primary Industries confirmed the detection of five red imported fire ant nests at Moolumba over the weekend, as David Clawton reports. It was perhaps just a matter of time before fire ants were found in New South Wales. They've been eradicated from the state before, back in 2015, when they were discovered in the port of Botany in Sydney. But with them spreading in Queensland as well, New South Wales Farmers Far North Coast Branch President Craig Huff says authorities need to get on a war footing to stop the spread this time, and a checkpoint on the border is needed. Uh, We have called for a checkpoint at the heavy vehicle transport station, for example, at Chindra, uh, just on the M1, to be uh, taken on there and for DPI to set up a checkpoint there. And we're still calling just as recently this morning and asking the DPI, would you please consider that as a measure? Because it puts a strong message to the community uh, of how drastic the situation is. I mean, just to put it in perspective, the Invasive Species Council are telling us that the combined impact of feral foxes, cane toads, cats and rabbits is actually less than what this one species, invasive species, is going to be for us, for our local environment and how it's going to just tie us down in red tape and uh, it could even bring some farming operations to a grinding halt. This is a really important issue for agriculture, not only for agriculture, for businesses and even for backyards and national parks and the environment overall. It's just a massive issue. Um, and it's really important that they give it the priority. It needs like, to be, to me, a warlike response. Craig Huff speaking to Bromman Herbert. Graham Dudgeon is the General Manager of the National Red Imported Fire Ant Eradication Program. In a press conference, Bromman Herbert asked him how long the fire ants have been in Mwilumbar. Look, we still need to get some testing of the samples that we've taken. We know they've been here for more than a few months, otherwise the nests wouldn't be as developed as they are. But it's very, very hard to date them. Um, The most important thing is not how old they are, it's how advanced they are and whether they may have flown. Could you describe what you have seen in terms of the maturity of those nests? 
So some of the nests have had what's called winged allates. So those are young queens. We don't know whether these have flown yet. So normally they have to fly up into a swarm. They're fertilised by um, the winged males and they fly off to create new nests. We don't know whether that has happened. We just found them in the nests. How concerning is it, though, that you are finding the winged version? Like, it's not like they're tiny little young fire ants, are you? Like, they're, these are a more mature species. Well, it's just part of the development of the nest. And so they get to the stage where uh, they're advanced enough to spread. So we just assume that that may have happened and that's why we treat and survey out so far. We don't just kill the nest where they are. Is it concerning, though, that this is 20 k's from the, the closest known site? It's suspected that it was what's called human-assisted movement. So they might have hitched a ride in what we call fire ant carriers. So that's in turf or soil could have happened here. Um, often it's in hay or mulch. That could happen. Um, what we have to do is make sure that we've got really good eyes on the ground around the outside of the infestation, a lot of surveillance, which we do ourselves, but we also get the community to do that. In this case, that has worked, and so the ants were found. We immediately come and we attend to them. Yes, the news there that uh, red, red fire ant has been found in New South Wales. His Graham Dudgeon is the general manager of the National Red, uh, red Imported Fire Ant Eradication Program. You're listening to The Country Hour. It's 10 past 12. And uh, as we heard there, a total of five red fire ant nests have been found near Mwollombar in northern New South Wales, just over the border from Queensland. They were found on a council development site. Uh, they may, the site was generally unused. They may have actually been there for two months. At least no further detections have been found in the region and surveillance is underway in the five kilometre exclusion zone and DPI officers and sniffer dogs have been deployed as well. Minister Tara Moriarty, Agriculture Minister, says it's disappointing news that the fire ants have now spread into our state. It is, uh, but we have been planning for this and we have been prepared for this. Uh, and unfortunately, we did uh, get a report of five nests uh, that were found in South uh, Mwollombar on Friday. They were confirmed by our experts on Friday afternoon uh, and they were treated uh, and taken out from that site uh, by Saturday. So we have been ready to deal with this and unfortunately um, the plans that we've had in place have had to be put to use but they've worked. So you reckon that we've got rid of them from New South Wales now? Well we've gotten rid of them from the site where they were found on Friday um, but all of those have been treated um, and terminated. We've checked uh, 10 hectares of the surrounding area and we haven't found any more uh, as of now. Um, we've treated uh, 8 hectares in the surrounding area just in case but we haven't found any more outside of the site where they were found on Friday. Um, there are, a, we've got a biosecurity zone in place now within 5Ks of the area that they were found and there are um, a couple of businesses uh, that are considered high risk like a nursery and some landscapers and they are being checked by our sniffer dogs today um, and so far we haven't found any more. Right, now there was um, talk that uh, you know they were just only over the border by a couple of kilometres. Um, uh, did you do baiting and trapping to stop them coming over uh, before this, though, like, you know, uh, when we knew in August? Yes, we, we've had a, a whole operation in place for many months uh, with border controls in place uh, and uh, the 5K radius from where they were last uh, seen in Queensland where people haven't been allowed to move uh, materials like salt and, uh, sorry, sand and mulch and plants and things of that nature without permits. Um, the tracing people from the department who do terrific work are looking at the 
materials at this site. Uh, we do suspect at this stage that they have come from Queensland. It may well be some turf that's been laid uh, that could be the culprit, but the tracing team are looking into that, uh, and once we've got confirmation, uh, we'll advise people. So they may have done something illegal by bringing it over and not actually uh, declaring it? Well, if that's the case, there are significant fines in place, but we'll do the work of tracing first. Um, what we want at this point is for people to report in. So thankfully, some uh, members of the public, some landscapers, um, I, I saw these ants on Friday and they called DPI, which is what we want people to do. Um, that gave us the chance to identify them as red ants, so red imported fire ants, on Friday. And again, they were uh, treated by Saturday. We want people to call uh, if they think they see them. Um, if this product, if they have come in um, illegally, then there are significant fines in place, $2 million for businesses, a $1 million for individuals. Um, and so there are protections in place and penalties in place if people are moving products that they shouldn't. It's a council-owned uh, development site for, for businesses to move into. So there's no one operating there at the moment. It's an empty site. Um, that is being redeveloped for future use. Uh, and at the moment, uh, we've been, we have been checking uh, inch by inch, centimetre by centimetre. There's been fantastic teams uh, on the ground over the course of the last couple of days, and we haven't found any more uh, to date. Uh, your opposition uh, counterpart, Dougal Saunders, is saying that you, you should have uh, taken more action in August. You should have actually put into place some more tracing and, uh, and maybe baiting and activities in, in August, and you were slow to act. Uh, no, we've had a very good plan in place and it has worked uh, since these ants were discovered in Friday, on Friday. So we've been uh, running water operations, we've got signs up, we've notified the community about what to look for. This has been going on for months. We've been working with police uh, and other forms of surveillance. So this has been a well-known operation for uh, many, many months. Um, the New South Wales government has also put $95 million of funding towards the National Eradication Program Previous government is all talk now, but they did none of that. They put no funding towards this, despite the fact that it's been an issue uh, in Queensland for many, many years. So we've acted. We've had money. We've put money behind it. We've had our plans in place. Uh, and on Friday, uh, they came to fruition. Are they all close together? Do you, and do you think you you will be able to contain it? Well, it's one site. Uh, so there's five nests. Five nests in one site. Yep. Yeah, on one site. Yes. So they are um, in a small area. I visited the site uh, yesterday to have a look for myself. Uh, and we have been checking. Uh, it'll be over 10 hectares uh, from that site that have been checked, uh, you know, per centimetre by centimetre to date. We haven't found any more, which is good. But obviously we're going to continue to look and we ask the public to to keep an eye out as well. We're all in this together. Biosecurity is everybody's responsibility, um, but there haven't been any more since Friday. So when do you think you'll be confident to say that you that, that, that this will be it, that these that's contained to this area? Uh, well, we're working through that now. There is a biosecurity zone in place for 5Ks uh, around uh, the area where we found them on Friday. Uh, so that means people within that 5K zone at the moment can't move product uh, like soil uh, and plants and mulch and uh, things of that nature uh, from outside of that 5K zone, uh, but we are checking sites uh, that are impacted right now. Uh, the nursery and the landscaper, for example, have the sniffer dogs uh, checking the site today. But they can fly, can't they? Uh, they can. Yes, they can, which is why we're being extra cautious to check um, a significant amount of, uh, air, the community. The plan is still in place and we want people to be vigilant. We're letting, we've started letting individual members of the community know by text message. There'll be people from the department knocking on people's doors um, to let them know directly uh, to look out for ants. And is it a recent outbreak? I mean, have they been there a long time, do you think? Uh, this is what the department tracing team are working on now. So there's some speculation 
uh, based on what was found, that they may have been there um, for a couple of months. I can't confirm that. I want the tracing team to do their work. A couple of months, that's a bit of an issue. Well, it's possible that that's the case, but because it's a site that's being redeveloped but isn't in use, it's not that surprising. That's Minister for Agriculture, Tara Moriarty, talking about the news there that fire ants have indeed now spread into New South Wales and they're hoping that uh, they can stop them spreading any further. 17 minutes past 12. ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. Climate change protesters blockaded the Port of Newcastle over the weekend and action is continuing today. More than 100 people have been charged following the 30-hour blockade after staying out on the water past the approved protest deadline time. Two have faced Newcastle local court. Here's what a few of the protesters had to say. We know for a fact that the fossil fuel companies were not on the ground to help us when the climate crisis actually hits. And so we are calling on the government to immediately stop their senseless profiteering at the expense of our climate and our future. Because we're so young, we feel like the climate crisis is a lot more immediate because we feel like it's pressing down on us and it'll affect our whole future. Whereas we feel older politicians aren't that concerned because it's not this big looming thing in the future for them. They might not even experience it. I've been working in the coal industry now for 43 years. I'm still employed in the industry, working whether it be sort of supervising guys or facilitating training for new guys that are entering the industry. As a coal miner, I was monitoring carbon dioxide all the time, every day at work. I knew what it was when I started, which was 300 parts per million. My instruments, of course, only measure not to the same level of accuracy, but when someone else told me the change, I felt betrayed. I felt let down. I was just so angry. I wouldn't be here today if I didn't think there was a future. What that future holds, I'm a bit afraid of. Look, I've got a son I've got a, and a daughter, and I wonder what the challenges are that will be for those people and, and generations after that. I'm hopeful that as a country, at community, state by state, we'll get there, that we'll, we'll get on board with this. Is it fast enough for me? No, but Australia gets there eventually. Federal member for Hunter Dan Rapacioli has described that protest as ridiculous. He told Amelia Bernasconi, although he doesn't support the action, everyone does have a right to protest. Honestly, everyone has the right to protest, but I think it's a bit chaotic what they're doing down there. There's tens of thousands of jobs up in the Hunter that helps get all that coal down to the port and then out on the ships to places that really need it. So we can power power uh, at least half of the world is powered by our coal. So um, the stage of protest like they've done, like I think is a bit ridiculous personally. Um, But as I said at the start, everybody has the right to protest um, and and we don't want to take that away from anyone, but they need to think about the hardworking miners and the miners' families that are up in the valley as well. Mm, We understand the protesters will remain near the shipping channel today even after that protest activity, the deadline sort of passed late yesterday. What impact are you anticipating that will have on not only the ports movements, but then also the sort of flow on across the train network um, up our way? Look, I think the port the port do a great job. The port are very well organised and, and can cater for when things change. So they're very adaptive to situations like this. So I don't think we'll see too big issues along the way because just how well the port works. Um, but those protesters, I think, need to, rem- need to just remember that 
anything to do with mining or fossil fuels has paid has got their phones, their plastic canoes, their kayaks, everything that they're using out there is all to do with something from the fossil fuel industry. They say that we need leadership to reach our climate change goals, our emissions reductions goals. Are you confident that your government is doing that? Yeah, well, we're the only government that came in and said that we want to have 43% reduction in emissions by 2030 um, and 50% by 2050. We're the only government that actually came in and done that so and said that we're going to do it and legislated that we're going to do it. So um, they could say that we need to do more, but unfortunately for some of these people, there's never enough. There's never enough at all. So we need to make sure we have a good balance of being able to make sure that we can continue to keep good quality, safe, secure employment in regions like ours, but also trying to meet our climate target goals as well. That's Federal Member for the Hunter, Dan Rapacholi. A Port of Newcastle spokesperson says following protest action within the shipping channel over the weekend, vessel movements have now resumed. In a statement, the New South Wales Minerals Council says disrupting coal exports will have no impact on global coal demand or supply, but it will cause significant economic damage to New South Wales. Coal exports represents New South Wales' most valuable exports by far and are worth more than $70 billion nationally and provide jobs for over 25,000 people across the state. It's coming up to 22 past 12. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. Rural charity Aussie Hayrunners has announced they'll return to the Upper Hunter early next year. In the last six weeks, two hay runs to the drought-hit Upper Hunter have seen around 250 farmers gifted donated hay worth more than $200,000. The Hunter is now all drought-declared, with a quarter deemed in intense drought. But some showers over the weekend has lifted spirits a little bit, as Amelia Bernasconi reports. It was a misty Friday afternoon and around 30 trucks rolled into the Upper Hunter for the second visit by the Aussie Hay Runners in just six weeks. We brought the uh, Aussie Hay Runner uh, rain gods with us. <laughs> They've been busy right around the state helping drought and bushfire hit farmers. On the two Upper Hunter convoys alone, they've travelled more than 157,000 kilometres, costing more than $314,000 to deliver around 2,500 bales of hay to 250 farmers and farming families. Steve Carter is the president of Denman Lions. He's been coordinating the hay drops, and he says this time the Aussie hay runners even brought some rain as well. It's lifted the spirits. Um, Everybody enjoys that rain. They know what it means out there. A lot of the people that are ringing in, some of the farmers are telling us that some have had handy falls today on follow-up after a couple of storms. Some places still haven't received anything, and um, but as you know, it's, it's very patchy, but anyway, at least it's trying. I can't believe we're only a month, less than a month away from Christmas. What does it mean to these producers to be getting a bit of relief as we head into, you know, obviously things wind down over Christmas and the feeding of stock certainly doesn't, though. No, no we're... Um, some of these farmers, I know one guy, he spent six hours a day out on his property, either cleaning dams out, ensuring water's going, and this hay is going to help. As people are saying, they know what the price of hay is. The amount we're giving them is only a small amount, but it might be 1000 to $1,200 per farmer. And going into the end of the year and Christmas and the pressures that puts on family, that $1,000 or whatever... It means a lot to them. It might mean the difference between a a nice Christmas dinner or um, or not. So you know, it's, uh, we hope it makes a difference. 
It's not just the hunter feeling the pinch. Statewide, about 5% of New South Wales is in intense drought and three quarters impacted in some way. Now, each hay run, the Rural Assistance Authority covers half the cost of fuel, but everything else, the hay, the time, it's all donated. Aussie Hay Runners founder Linda Widdop says they're helping wherever they can. The phone calls and the, the you know need for help are, are so widespread that yes, we did um, quite a lot of runs up there and we're in the middle of doing uh, Inverell and Ashford at the moment and we've done a, another run down here and it just keeps, the, the, call for, the calls for help just keep sort of expanding out wider and wider and while they're calling, we'll help. What sort of feedback have you got from people this evening? You've had a beautiful barbecue dinner. Um, have you had a chance to chat to people and yeah, see how they're going, how things have changed six weeks since the last trip? So we got to meet quite a few of the farmers tonight and it was a really nice thing because that sort of gives you an idea of where people are at, you know, with, with trying to, to help them, um, you know, and it does. It takes a lot of anxiety, a lot of, you know, stress from them until they can either organise something or we can come back with some, you know, some more hay to help them out. So, but unfortunately up this way, a lot of farmers kind of miss out. So we are organising another run for next year for, for this area again because, you know, there's a lot more people out there that need help and, like I say, we're here to help. Some parts of the Hunter have received an inch or two since late last week. For others, it was just a single digit or they might have missed out completely. But Linda Widdop says the Aussie hay runners will be back in the new year. We're looking around January. It's just there, there's a bit of a process that we have to go through because, like I say, we work with the RAA, which is the Rural Assistance Authority. They give us a fuel subsidy to get our trucks. So all the hay is donated. The guys sitting in the truck donate their time. They just get a fuel subsidy. So by the time you put in for a run, we've got to get approved. Once we've got the approval, I can then do a, a date and we're off. You know, so, you know, the next one I think is about 38 trucks. So that just that just brings up a little bit more for those people that did miss out. And that'll be the largest hay run to the Upper Hunter yet. Steve Carter says the books are already filling up. I know they've got hay scheduled for us and just have to confirm dates and times. So at this stage, I've probably got 300, maybe more farmers on the books. We've had a few calls in again today, people that only just heard about it. So we will pick up a few more, but um, well, the amount of hay that they're talking about coming in January and February, if they do, we do go that far, um, will be enough to satisfy a lot of those farmers. Steve Carter is the president of Denman Lions, which is working with Aussie hay runners to get that hay out to drought-hit farmers in the Upper Hunter. Amelia Bernasconi with that story. It's coming up to 27 minutes past 12. Well, 30 years ago, hundreds of women made their way to Boranor in the central west of New South Wales for their first ever rural women's gathering. And over the weekend, more than 130 women from around the state made that same trip back to Boranor to celebrate the event's 30th anniversary. ABC's Lauren Bohane went along to the event where she caught up with Julie Whiteley, who was at that first conference back in 1993. When I came, first of all, 30 years ago, I had children who are now the age of my grandchildren, so <laughs> been been around a little bit, but um, yeah. 30 years ago, Julie Whiteley attended the first New South Wales Rural Women's Gathering at Boranor in the state's central west. That was really good. Um, I came across this time with the same friend that I came with 30 years ago, so it, 
we had a lovely trip over from Warren yesterday afternoon and I've met up with another really good friend from Bathurst and the two speakers that I've listened to so far are very inspirational and um, I really enjoyed the last session and it got very personal with people um, t- telling about some of their experiences and you know like it's it's very good to get them out in the open and hopefully more will come from this. To mark the 30th anniversary, the event is back at Boranor, 15 minutes west of Orange. It's hard to believe that three decades ago, over 400 women travelled from near and far to be part of the first rural women's gathering in Orange. Back then, we didn't have mobile phones or social media, and gatherings were one way rural women could learn, network, create connections. Organiser and co-chair of this year's event, Jane West, says things have come a long way for regional women over the past three decades. 30 years ago it was the first uh, gathering of women. There wasn't a lot of opportunity for women to come together outside their small towns as a New South Wales group. Obviously it's evolved over the 30 years and change has been made but it's very enheartening when you see the room full of ladies this morning that have never attended another event so that was very exciting and I think you know it's a great opportunity for people to gather together. There's a lot of networking going on. Um, I think women empower women and they love hearing stories on on other women's success stories. How important is it to have an event like this for regional and rural women specifically? Absolutely. I mean, it was very empowering to see some of those women stand up and tell their story this morning. Obviously, they felt really comfortable in this room full of women from rural areas and you know there were some heartbreaking stories that were being told of things that had happened in their life so I think you know that to me brings it all home that it's really important that we be able to host these gatherings and bring these women together and share their stories. A steady drizzle had set in at the site by Saturday morning, but it certainly wasn't enough to dampen the enthusiasm of the women attending. My name's Erin Marsden. Um, I've lived in Orange for about 13 years now. Uh, my husband and I live at, currently live at Lewis Ponds where we breed, have a small uh, alpaca farm where we breed alpacas. For me, this event this weekend is just to get more information, more networking, um, You know, have, do some fun events and just put myself out there basically yeah um to you know learn from people that have been doing this a lot longer than I have yeah how important do you think events are like this are for for women in rural and regional New South Wales oh I think they're extremely important I mean a lot of um farms are very isolated and the women are at home um and so events like this gets them out it gets them socializing it's something fun they don't have to think about oh I've got to do that you know I've got to feed oh oh sugar I forgot to unload that feed it's something um to get away from the day-to-day which gets very routine so I think they're fantastic and, and just all the different information now that comes out with mental health and women's health, I think it's really, really important. Yeah. For Rachel Chippendale, who co-founded Central West Inspired Women, an organisation connecting regional and rural women post-COVID, the event is all about bringing like-minded people together. When you live in the city, there are events like this. Literally every weekend you could probably find something that's accessible for you within 45 minutes. Um, This is a chance for women that live all across regional New South Wales to come together to share, I think, the sharing of experiences, the sharing of knowledge, and just feeling that you are supported by people that are in the same boat as you. 
Yes, talking about the situation there with the 30th anniversary of uh, the Rural Women's Gathering. Uh, they went back to Boronor there for the th- for the 30th, first, uh, for the first event in 1993. It's coming up to 28 minutes to one here on the country. Uh, shortly we'll have the latest on the uh, Basin deal and some people have texted in about uh, fire ants. Someone's saying... Um, uh, they're um, they're uh, pretty disappointed. Uh, we're seeing varroa mite now. We're seeing fire ants into New South Wales. Let's see if we can get this under control from the first instance, says Dave in Trundle. And uh, someone says at least the fire ants now they have plenty to drink now that they're spreading through the Murray Darling Basin, which is what uh, the uh, authorities, the agriculture authorities, were worried about. Of course, a few weeks ago we we're talking about that on the Country Hour. Now let's find out what else has been making news. Adam Story is here. Good afternoon. Afternoon. Well, the head of the Home Affairs Department, Mike Bazulo, has formally been dumped from the role. Uh, this was after he stood aside uh, following revelations of text messages between Mr Bazulo and uh, an influential uh, Liberal Party figure uh, in which uh, he discussed uh, various matters of government, including who he'd like to see in various positions and whatnot. So his uh, standing down, well, his sacking basically is for breaches of the code of of the Public Service Code of Conduct, uh, which the uh, public uh, Australian Public Service says uh, was breached on at least uh, 14 occasions. Right, so I guess the, uh, the message from that is if you're going to do those things, don't do them in a text. No, that's it. Even if, uh, yeah. remember, remember Humphrey Appleby? They used yes. to sit in the club. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> they used to work it. out. They'd yeah. say, I'd like to see this person in that job. And yes, I'd exactly. like to see yeah. maybe my minister could be the prime minister one day. Well, this is where these things should be decided. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> we worked that out. There you not, go. Not on, a, not on a digital device. <laughs> that's right. Um, the, uh, following on from that High Court ruling over indefinite detention, uh, 130 people uh, who were in immigration detention are today being fitted with ankle monitoring bracelets. Uh, concerns were raised about community safety and uh, the government uh, rushed through new laws to allow the monitoring of the group. Uh, of the 138 people, six are yet to be uh, fitted. I suppose that means measured up for a bracelet. <laughs> so the tailors are out there. <laughs> as we speak. Uh, Also, uh, there is legislation being put uh, towards Parliament. Uh, This would allow judges to strip dual citizenship uh, from citizens who are found to break the law. I did have that story somewhere. I'll just give... Here it is. Uh, it uh, it gave the Home Affairs Minister the power, uh, the coalition introduced laws that gave the Home Affairs Minister the power to strip a terrorist of their dual Australian citizenship, citizenship but the High Court found that uh, that should only be imposed uh, by a judge and the government is now introducing laws to ensure they comply with that. Mm. Now, Hamas and uh, Israel are talking about extending the uh, current... Uh, Ceasefire. Yes, some uh, new hostages were released. I just yes. saw on the BBC there. And today they've offered uh, uh, to increase the number of hostages released as it's ready for a two to four day extension in return for the release of another 20 uh, to 40 hostages. Um, so, no sort of formal response right. uh, to that offer as yet, but the uh, current ceasefire expires in a day. So, yep. Yep. fingers crossed that. Mm. Um, it can be extended and then more hostages can be released. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. Yes. All right. And we're off to Scone to see to the launch of the Horse you're, Festival. You're but we'll be scone. talking to you down you're the line. You're off to Scone. Yes. yes. I'm off to Scone. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, you'll <laughs> you'll be here in the office talking yeah, so down the line it. in the studio. Mining the shop. That's right. Yeah. Exactly, and doing the news. Yeah, exactly. Which is which is is our uh, want. Which is what I get paid to do. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Okay. Not to do day trips to Skype. <laughs> Lovely. Lovely as it is. As lovely as it is. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Adam. Okay. Adam's story there with uh, news and commentary. It's 24 minutes to one here on the country. Now let's find out what's happening with the weather details. And Dylan Bird at the Bureau. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Michael. How are you? Very well. So uh, Dave and Trundle said they got a total of 36 millimetres of rain on Wednesday through till Saturday via the thunderstorm activity. But And we're seeing that in the next few days too, we're going to see more of that thunderstorm activity and maybe some some more rainfall as well throughout the state. Yeah, I think this week will be the wettest week we've had in some time. So uh, today it looks like um, the conditions not super conducive to um, high rainfall totals, so looking like uh, many broad areas seeing a well, broad areas seeing a storm through the northern interior and the coast, but doesn't look like we'll see much um, activity at all um, through the southern inland areas. Looks like we could see uh, in the south anywhere between maybe uh, two or eight millimeters, but um, in the far west we might see a severe storm in the afternoon um, with some. Uh, um, Rainfall and uh, wind gusts, but it looks like, uh, generally speaking, the the rainfall there might be only be two to five mil in the far west um, today. Then uh, moving into Tuesday, though, we've got this inland low that's moving through, so we haven't seen one of those for a little while, um, and uh, it looks like it's developing pretty rapidly and should be fairly um, strong. So uh, broad areas of severe storms um, with uh, possibility of some heavy rainfall, maybe even some large hail, maybe even some giant hail in the far west um, right. in the afternoon. Yeah. So um, and so that, broad broad areas. So what is, is the whole really state broad. might be so, saying, so the, the, seeing so some the whole rain. State has a chance of the, the whole state has a chance of some some rain. Right. Apart from a very tiny corner in the far northwest. But um, otherwise, um, very, very high chance um, in many places. And uh, looks like uh, we could see um, anywhere between maybe 20 to 50 millimetres. Um, and that will really depend on where the storms are. But uh, this low looks to be uh, yeah, fairly convectively strong. So, so widespread um, storms and widespread showers. Um, and uh, with that, we should see, uh, yeah, some decent falls, I think, um, between uh, Tuesday and Wednesday. So, as I said, the low moves in on um, like to the to the west and southwest on Tuesday, and then from Wednesday it tracks along, um, moving eastward um, into the uh, Tasman by uh, Wednesday, and then by Thursday it looks like it might be moving uh, southward towards the Bass Strait. So the risk for severe storms moves from Tuesday a little further eastward on Wednesday, but still many inland um, areas, particularly eastern Riverina central west slopes and plains and uh, northern um, tablelands and uh, yeah and, and throughout the ranges could see storms too okay and sort of the higher topo- topography i guess uh, likely yeah. to get uh, get more rainfall and, and more thunderstorm that's, activity that's but right. i mean I, I guess the sort of the baseline though is sort of might be five millimeters of rain and then if you get a storm it could be in 20 to 50 is that is that what we're looking yeah, at yeah that that's right, that's right. But we could also see just really constant widespread um, showers just training over each other. And right. with that, we could see yeah, quite high totals. We could, we could be seeing many, many places getting up to 30 or, or 40 mils in, um, in places. Well, some, um, some were saying or, or up Wednesday. to 100 millimetres if you're under a storm. So we could see well, some flash flooding maybe. That's exactly right. And, um, and to emphasise that as well, um, on Wednesday, it looks like there's a really uh, 
a good chance of seeing some really high um, rainfall totals through there. Um, looks actually less convective, so like not really so much storm um, motivated, but it uh, looks like we could just see uh, buckets of rain um, pouring over the south coast on uh, oh, okay. Tuesday, Tuesday night into Wednesday. And the Monero, because they've been missing out on some rain. Monero, it might not be as strong through there, but we could still see some pretty high totals. But yeah, um, there could be a risk of flooding on Wednesday as well in in those parts, but that hasn't been finalised by our hydrologist, so we're just keeping an eye on that. But um, yeah, we'll just have to see how the how the models uh, turn out. But, right, um, okay. So there is a bit of model difference still at this point, but it does look like, um, at least in our forecasts, we're seeing already parts that are between a hundred and like between eighty and a hundred mils for the, for the entire day for the average right. down in the south coast. So, so we'll Eastern, Eastern Eastern Riverina, Southeast Monero, uh, the Southern well, Tablelands. Well, are they going to get m- uh, more than other areas? Maybe what, yeah, rather than so say the areas, Northern Tablelands or the North Coast? Or yeah, the that's right. Coast? So that's on Wednesday. So on Wednesday, it looks like those areas could see anywhere between like ten and thirty mils. Um, but on the North Coast, and yeah, and and as I said, in a storm, it could be a lot higher. But ten, 10 or thirty mils is kind of the average between. Um, on Riverina and the Southern Tablelands and the Monero. Um, on the, in the Northern Tablelands on Wednesday, it looks like it's more like 10 or 15 mils. Back, back, going back to Tuesday, the Northern Tablelands, yeah, again, not getting as much. So maybe like the lower totals, 5 to five to 15, 5 to 20 mils. But yeah, b- broadly over the rest of the state, it looks like you could get yeah, anywhere between that 20 to 50 millimetre mark. Okay, on, Dylan, on all Tuesday. right. Yep, yep, bit yeah, of rain yeah, around. <laughs> a, lot of, a lot to unpack. Yeah, but, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, but just watch out for the warnings because there could be uh, so, yes, yeah, so some severe phenomena. So um, as I said, heavy rainfalls, hail, or damaging wind gusts. Yes, indeed. So stay listening to ABC Local Radio for any uh, updated emergency information. Um, Dylan, thanks for that. No worries. Have a good one. It's eighteen minutes to one on the New South Wales Country Hour. Well, the Federal Water Minister has announced that she struck a deal with the Greens to pass an extension of the Murray Darling Basin plan. The Greens will now support the legislation after gaining some concessions to permanently put in the plan additional water for the environment and more money for First Nations water rights. It means the plan's extension and more buybacks of water from irrigators are likely to pass the Senate within the fortnight. Warwick Long is speaking to the ABC Rules Parliament House reporter, Kath Sullivan. G'day, Warwick. Well, people who have been following what's been happening with the Murray-Darling Basin plan are unlikely to be surprised that the Greens and the Commonwealth have struck a deal. It's been in the offing, I suppose, since Tanya Plibersek announced a few months ago that she wants to change the law to change the Murray-Darling Basin plan, a piece of legislation that's existed with bipartisan support for more than a decade now. That's for a couple of reasons. Despite that decade, despite more than 2,100 gigalitres of water being allocated to the environment uh, that wasn't there before the plan came into effect, there's still a shortfall of almost 750 gigalitres of water that was to be recovered under the existing legislation. We can go into why that shortfall exists in a moment if you like, but Tanya Plibersek wants to change what's existing in the law at the moment to give more time to basically reach these legislated targets. Uh, She wants to be able to do that by considering new water saving projects that could find those water savings that could go to the environment to boost the health of the system, to increase the ecosystem Uh, She also wants to be able to use water buybacks. To do this, Tanya Plibersek does need a few more numbers in the Senate to get the ledge through, and we know now that the Greens will do that. So, Kath, a deal has been done. What are the details of the deal? 
Okay, so in return for the Greens' support, Tani Plibersek has committed that 450 gigalitres of water that was originally promised in return for South Australia's support for the original plan that uh, we know can only, well, existingly, can be recovered in a way that causes no socioeconomic harm. Well, the Greens want a legislated commitment that that water will be recovered for the environment by December of 2027. There's a couple of other things as well, including the ability for the Commonwealth to knock on the head state-run water-saving projects, which could be an interesting one, and also an integrity audit of the water that's already been allocated or water that has been allocated to the Commonwealth Environmental Water Holder, and that would be undertaken by the Inspector General of Water Compliance. Kath Sullivan is the ABC Rules Parliament House reporter. Now, Federal Water Minister Tanya Plibersek has been seeking to amend the legislation to extend the deadline for the plan, allow new water-saving projects to be considered towards the plan's targets and to allow for more water wipe buybacks to take place. She says she's happy the Greens and the Federal Government have come to an arrangement. To get the Murray-Darling Basin Plan back on track so that we can deliver for the three million Australians that rely on the Murray-Darling Basin river system for their drinking water, for the towns and communities that rely on the river system, for the industry, the agriculture that relies on the river system, and of course for the environment that relies so much on this river system. We know we're going into another hot, dry spell. We've seen the consequences of that in the past with the mass fish kills, with the 400-year-old trees dying on dry riverbanks, for the towns that have had dry riverbeds for more than a year at a time. We know that as we go into another hot, dry spell, it is more critical than ever that we deliver fully on the Murray-Darling Basin Plan. I'm very pleased to say today that Labor has been negotiating with the Greens party and that we have agreed to a number of significant amendments to the Restoring Our Rivers Bill, which will improve the bill and allow the Greens party to vote to support the Restoring Our Rivers Bill in the Senate. The amendments go to uh, greater transparency and accountability uh, against water recovery targets, making sure that the water that has been set aside for the environment is actually delivered. Amendments go to um, making sure that water saving and water efficiency projects that aren't going to be delivered are actually withdrawn, that we are operating off a firm base. Amendments go to making sure that there's water for the environment in both the northern and southern parts of the Murray-Darling Basin and that there is a stronger role for First Nations communities across the basin in decision-making around particularly how environmental water is used. We're also uh, delivering on the Aboriginal Water Entitlement Programme. This was a promise made in 2018 by the previous government and broken by the previous government. $40 million was promised and never delivered by the previous government. Uh, As well as delivering on this promise, we will be increasing that amount of water set aside for First Nations water entitlements to $100 million. I want to thank Sarah Hanson-Young for the very constructive way we've worked together to deliver these important changes to the Restoring Our Rivers Bill and for her support subsequently for the bill. As we go into another hot, dry spell, it is inconceivable that we fail the environment and fail inland communities 
again as a parliament. Labor has a proposal to fully deliver the Murray-Darling Basin Plan. It's been improved with cooperative negotiations with the Greens Party. We want to see the, the bill delivered so that we can deliver water for communities and for the environment. It has to happen this week. If this legislation doesn't pass this week, uh, we will go uh, into a a range of automatic uh, timelines that come into play under the Murray-Darling Basin Plan. Wouldn't be good for farmers, wouldn't be good for rural communities, and it would be a disaster for the environment. Water Minister Tanya Plibersek, well, Berrigan Deputy Mayor Carly Berrigan told Connor Burke that 98% of her shire's gross domestic product is tied to agriculture and if the bill passes it will badly affect the farm sector because no water equals no investment. You're just undermining the entire system that's been here for generations. Like my great-great-grandfather has been here farming and irrigation made this area boom. It's why we've got really successful trucking operations here. It's why we've got great food manufacturing operations here because the water attracts investment. And as we all know, if you've got investment, then you've got healthy regional communities. So what they're doing is crippling our local community. And what's going to happen is the, the, the four towns are going to turn around and say, well, now we all need government assistance because we're actually doing a really good job of looking after ourselves out here. And if the government could stay out of the mess of water politics and let us do what we're good at doing, which is growing food and looking after our own community... We will do it. But by, by getting this bloody bill through, they've, they've gone and undone all the good work that generations of families in town, out of town and everyone in between have been working towards building. That's Berrigan's Deputy Mayor talking to Connor Burke. It's uh, 10 minutes to one. ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. China's appetite for Australian goat meat is growing rapidly with exports surging by a staggering 4,000% this year. Meat and Livestock Australia reports in 2022, China took just 1% of Australia's goat meat exports. Now it's taking 20%. That makes China Australia's second largest market for goat meat behind the United States. MLA Global Supply Analyst and Analyst Tim Jackson says with goat slaughter in Australia rising 50% since last year, it's opened up more export opportunities. What's happened this year is that we've had a big increase in goat production in Australia from last year. We typically, in a normal year, would send a majority of that to the United States and then set of other markets. And last year and in previous years, we sent hardly any to China. What's happened this year is that most of that big uplift in goat production has gone to China. So the turnaround's been that last year we exported about 150 tonnes in the year to October to China, and this year we've ex- uh, exported just over 5,500 tonnes. So it's quite a large increase, and it means that they've gone, China's gone from being a very small market for Australian goat to the second largest. And is price the driving factor behind that at the moment? The domestic over-the-hooks price in Australia for goat is hovering around that 193 cents a kilogram. It's come down a lot from where it was um, in June last year. I think it reached a peak of 920 cents a kilogram, so it's really dropped off. Is price what's increasing that appetite in China for Australian goat meat? Price is definitely a, a factor to think about because, of course, uh, goat meat become more affordable on the international market um, as well as the over-the-hook price uh, falling away quite substantially. 
So um, that's definitely a factor in terms of driving demand. But the other point would be that Australia already exports a lot of mutton to China, and there are lots of applications, meals, where you could either use mutton or goat, and in some cases mutton's even better. And so a combination of the price coming off um, a fair way and making it more affordable, but also um, kind of increased awareness of the availability of Australian goat to importers in China and um, consumers has meant that there's been, yeah, this really quite rapid increase in, in imports and consumption. And with China taking about 20% of Australia's export volume now, do you, do you foresee that that figure will keep increasing? There's not a particular reason uh, not to. Of course, uh, this has been a really, really rapid uh, increase in exports. That's Meat and Livestock Australia's Global Supply Analyst Tim Jackson speaking there to, to Cara Jeffrey. To markets and Bendigo sheep and lambs. Good afternoon. Mutton was a big improver today. Prices 10 to $20 dearer across a bigger yarding of 7,330 sheep. Heavy crossbred ewes, $50 to $65, and merino ewes, $60 to $75, although it was light sheep that really stepped up, even the plainest lots above $34 a head today. The ballpark cost for mutton was 170 to 220 cents a kilo carcass weight. Talking point for lamb was a big drop-off in numbers, down to 13,400 head or 7,000 less than a week ago. Not a lot of quality again, and quite a few of the lambs with weight were minimal for fat cover. Not all buyers operated, and it was a different buying group with Hamilton in the Western District starting its split markets today. The lamb market was similar overall, with price movements just a few dollars either side of last week. Heavy suckers, 140 to the top of 164, or 480 to 520 cents a kilo. Heavy trades, 122 to $146 at around 510 cents. General run of trades, 90 to 120. What we did see is restockers push up again with nice lines of Sean suckers up to $7 dearer at 68 to 88 for most, one pen to 104. Jenny Kelly for MLA. To Corowa Sheep and Lambs. Good afternoon. Lamb numbers lifted 7,300 and included 5,500 new season lambs. There was a good spread of weights, but light stores were best supplied. There was a good run of trades, both woolly and shorn, and a very good but small run of shorn heavy and extra heavy lambs. The market sold to Deera Trends new season store lambs to 16 kilos, 20 to 78 dollars. Prime trades 96 to 118 to average 480 to 500 cents. The heavyweights 24 to 26, 121 to 130, or 485 cents on average. 26 to 30, 126 to 136, a range from 450 to 495. The Sean trades 83 to 114, heavyweights 116 to 138 or 485 cents, extra heavies 147 to 164 or 465 cents on average. Hoggets lifted and reached $91, mutton numbers rose to 4,200, the quality varied but price is considerably stronger. Heavy crossbred ewes lifted 60 and topped at 108. Merinos with a skin made to 96. The medium weight ewes, 38 to 72. And this has been Graham Richard. Do Dubbo ship and lambs? Numbers were back by 3,000 for a yarding of 6,500 lambs. It was a mixed yarding with a fair selection of trade weight lambs and only limited numbers of heavyweights. 
Exotic lamb for well supplied and there were limited numbers of merinos penned. Trade weight new season lamb for 15 to 20 dira, selling from 88 to 129, to average between 470 and 535 cents a kilogram. Trade weight old lambs were up to $20 dira, selling from 68 to 140. Heavyweight lambs were 3 to 7 dira, with the old lambs over 24 kilograms, selling from 137 to 163, to average between 560 and 580 cents. Heavyweight new season lambs sold to 138. The few merino lambs were up to $12 dearer, with trade weight selling from 58 to 68. Lambs to the restockers were also dearer, with the new season lambs going back to the paddock, selling from 16 to 85. Hoggets were $30 dearer, selling to 97. We have the balance of the lambs and 6,200 mutton still to be sold. This is David Monk reporting from Dubbo. To Wagga Cattle. Good afternoon. Numbers jumped up to 4,380. The market was dominated by feedlots, all eager for a market share. Domestic processors were unable to up the ante with very few cattle, 350 to 500 kilos selling to processors. Feedlots also stepped up in the export categories, bouncing heavy exports. Steers 45 cents to top at 284. Feeder steer prices under 500 kilo jumped 25 cents, making 212 to 289. Feeder heifers picked up 13 to 30 cents, with the lighter weights topping at 283. Trade cattle sold from 210 to 256. Heavy exports gained 20, 228 to 250. Cows are in high demand, improving 20 to 25 cents, 203 to 233. The middle runner leaner types lifted 25, 186 to 216, and store cows 186 to 2 dollars, with the bulls topping at 250. I'm Leanne for MLA. Forbes cattle. Numbers lifted this sale with agents yarding 924 head. Quality was fair, with a good offering of finished cattle penned, along with those plainer types more suitable to feed. There was additional buyers present competing in a significantly dearer market. Yearling steers jumped 30 cents with those to feed receiving from 220 to 314. Finish lines to processors sold for 194 to 240 cents. The heifer portion was also 30 to 35 cents better with those to feed ranging in price from 200 to 259 while those to processors sold from 205 to 258. Heavy steers and bullocks for 15 cents dearer, selling from 220 to 235. Crone heifers reached 232 cents, and a good quality offering of cows was 20 cents dearer, with heavy two score from 150 to 197, and three and four score from 189 to 218. This has been Crystal Ridley at Forbes from LA. And Tamworth Cattle. Good afternoon. Despite good follow-up rain, numbers increased to 1,130 head. Young cattle well supplied with quality fair to good. A feature of the offering and run of very good heavy steers. Most of the regular processes in attendance. No supermarket buyer. Restocker demand was high with lightweight yearling steers posting strong gains, 285 to 368 cents a kilo. Medium and heavyweights were firm to dearer. Medium weights 262 to 322 cents. Heavyweight feeders sold from 255 to 304. Yearling heifers followed similar trends throughout. Light and medium weights 236 to 298. Heavyweights 240 to 285. Heavy grown steers were much dearer, aided by a quality improvement, 240 to 258 cents, with feeders to 270. Well-finished grown heifers followed suit. Processors paying from 195 to 240. Cows were firm to dearer, with two scores 155 to 200 cents, three and four scores 166 to 211 cents a kilo. James Armitage for MLA in Tamworth. And that's market information for today. You've been listening to The Country Hour, broadcasting tomorrow from Scone for the launch of the Horse Festival. Stay with us then on The Country Hour between 12 and 1.